0: I don't know if you know this, but the future is coming and you can make it brighter with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website. Make the future yours by showcasing your work, blog, you can publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers, and there is nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SO SMART to save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. Down the the Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode one twenty one. Every year, historian Ada Palmer rolls back history. She rolls it back to this busy period in human progress and runs it again and runs it again and again and again to see if the same things happen in the same way every time.
1: So, my name is Ada Palmer, and I teach history at the University of Chicago.
0: And the period of time that ADA reruns is the Italian Renaissance.
1: Uh, which is my major specialty, and I teach it every year for a mix of undergraduates and graduate students. sort of whoever wants to come, uh, we will visit the Renaissance.
0: Ada says that teaching the Renaissance is especially challenging because people already know or they, think they know a lot of facts from that era and the stuff they know about the renaissance she says is usually really nice
1: we like the renaissance it's a positive period of history in the way we think about history it has lots of wonderful art and uh cathedrals and music and beautiful dresses and it's very exciting
0: this view of the renaissance she says is a problem because it's not really all that accurate
1: renaissance was for the most part, a really terrible period to be alive and was, in fact, in a lot of ways, worse than the Middle Ages.
0: Ada says bigger conflicts with higher casualties and a more rapid circulation of disease all added up to a lower life expectancy. And all of that was the result of the economy improving, technology advancing, society becoming more wealthy and the powerful in those societies becoming more powerful.
1: When you make progress, when trade improves and more ships are coming in and travel is happening more, diseases travel faster. You all die of more different plagues. Uh, When trade booms and new technologies bring in new money, governments have more funds They can have larger armies with better equipment, and wars become deadlier as a strict result of the economy getting better, the technology getting better, and the society getting wealthier and more powerful. So, one of the challenges in that class is getting students to understand how this period can be at the same time so glorious, so productive, so beautiful, so rich in art, and yet also so apocalyptic to live through.
0: Ada says that. Thanks to progress, progress that we usually think of as great, wonderful, desirable, the the optimal way to to advance through history. Thanks to progress, living on the ground around 1500 in the time of Leonardo and Michelangelo was, for most people, horrible.
1: And I always use a quote from a letter that a friend of Machiavelli's wrote to Machiavelli. Machiavelli had been writing a history of Florence, and the friend had read part of it, and it wasn't finished. And and the friend wrote to Machiavelli saying, you must finish your history, because without a good history of this period, future generations will never believe how bad it was. And they will never forgive us for destroying so much so quickly.
0: To teach her students how it could be possible that one of our most beloved periods in human history could, in her words, be both triumphant and disastrous to the human condition. She started an exercise that she's been repeating for years now.
1: I run a simulation of the papal election of 1492.
0: That's right. A simulation of the papal election of 1492. And each of her students plays a role. Some become the cardinals.
1: Who are competing to be elected.
0: Some become the functionaries and bureaucrats and other side characters of history.
1: People who count the votes, the person who runs the kitchens and brings everybody's supper, the captain of the guard.
0: But some get to be the crowned heads of Europe.
1: The king of France, the Holy Roman Emperor, Queen Isabella of Castile, who want to manipulate the election from a distance.
0: In order to better play their roles, each student receives a packet which explains their characters' personality traits and deepest desires, their allies, their enemies, their life goals, and so on. They also, in this packet, receive the resources that that person would have had at the time in the form of cards representing armies and contracts.
1: Money, servants, courtiers, uh, brides and grooms that they can marry with each other, land, titles, depending on. How, how wealthy a particular character is.
0: She does this because within the simulation, she created a system, sort of like an elaborate tabletop game, and her students, as their characters from history, can use that system to trade, to do battle, to scheme, and exert political influence, and so on. Now, instead of a classroom, they meet in a Gothic chapel on campus where they negotiate and bicker, and then, eventually, elect a pope all while wearing costumes over their jeans and their sneakers, and it looks like a lot of fun. But Ada doesn't do this just to give her students a more detailed, ground-level understanding of the machinery of history. She carefully adjusts the conditions of her simulation so that alternative outcomes from what we know actually happened become possible.
1: I very intentionally changed around the history a little bit so that a few of the cardinals who are at the real election aren't there. And a few other cardinals who are from slightly earlier or slightly later in time are there. Because that way, even for students who already know who was elected in 1492, it isn't the same circumstances. So they can't do it, quote, correctly. They can't, you know, feel locked in by the, quote, real outcome. It's an alternate history, which is important because it makes their actions Free.
0: This is far more complex than you might be imagining. The students have a lot of virtual money in this simulation, and they have vast networks of underlings with their own subordinates as well, each with their own agendas and debts and ideas and life goals. Not only do they have these large objectives of power and conquest, but smaller challenges pop up on their properties as the story unfolds.
1: But each one of them, I'm giving them as closely as I can exactly the resources that their historical counterpart had and giving them the goal of doing basically the same things that their historical counterpart did.
0: So all of that is taking place in the main hall. The cardinals, they're up there doing their thing while in the basement, the students playing as the king of France and the queen of Castile and the holy Roman emperor, the people with the crowns. They're using text messages to pass secret letters back and forth to their secret agents above them in the church during the election. All those people who are on the sidelines, like the choir director and the servants pouring wine, people like that. And all of this, this this giant simulation, she says, students love it. They love it. And they really get into it.
1: They with energy and they make (laughs) factions and they betray each other and they scheme and they negotiate and they marry their nieces and nephews to each other and they (laughs) form factions and counter factions and betray each other and promise each other troops and elect a pope and then have a war.
0: What makes Ada Palmer's history simulation such a powerful teaching tool is that each time she runs the history, some things turn out the same and some things never do.
1: Some major powers always manage to be among the top contenders for the papacy, that they just have the correct web of resources that nothing can stop this person from being one of the top three contenders. But there's always also a wild card contender. There's always somebody who's never been in the top three before. That sort of everyone who hates the top three (laughs) unites behind and shoots to the top, and it's and it's totally unpredictable.
0: The boundaries of history seem set, at least in this simulation. The boundaries of what is possible seem set because this list of people who can become pope is always the same. But the person on that list who does become pope. That differs. The smallest change, a single conversation, a decision to be in one place or not another, a missed opportunity for an alliance or an army sent away instead of staying put, anything, anything can reshuffle this entire flow of events and lead to a different outcome, especially in the war that follows
1: these elections. And that, I think, is what models for the students very, very well how events of history relate to agency because some of these structures are set in stone.
0: For instance, in the simulation, some cardinals enter the game with vast resources that other cardinals simply can't match.
1: And so, in some sense, the major power blocks that are already there are going to control stuff. But they can't do so without the lesser powers supporting them. So they compete to try to get uh, people to support their side, Different people realize that they can rise to power on the coattails of others by playing kingmaker. Different people are more successful or less successful at playing kingmaker. And then even if the same pope is elected in the simulation two years in a row, which sometimes happens, a different person will have been his right-hand man. And then that person will say, your holiness, can I please borrow the papal army to do this thing that I want to do? And the Pope will say, yes. And suddenly a giant army is in one place instead of a different place. And if France wanted to invade Italy and the papal army is helping them instead of opposing them or the other way around, that can result in the salvation or slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people.
0: Tweak the variables just a little bit. And history unfolds differently. And in the real world, these variables would have had sub-variables with sub-variables all the way down to maybe someone walking left, turning right instead of walking right or turning left, eating a sandwich instead of a hot dog. The future is impossible to predict, and the past could have turned out much differently. But as Ada's simulation demonstrates, there are bounds to this chaos.
1: So some of the elements of what happens in the election are set in stone and the powerful people remain powerful no matter what. But which less powerful people gain power is always different. Mm -hmm. And which bit of Europe burns in the destruction that is to come is always a point of suspense up until the last moment.
0: I told Ada this reminded me of a study conducted a few years ago in which network scientists created a website where people could download and rate new songs from unknown artists. There were 48 songs in all, and there were 13,000 people in this study. So it was a really big study, and it needed to be because each one of those people was placed into one of eight different worlds. And within each of these worlds, people Rated that music they listened to, like you might do on iTunes or Spotify or something like that. And in each world, people were randomly sorted so that they were either early adopters or latecomers. They might be the first people to hear those songs or they might be the last people, like the people who, as as I've been many times, Oh, let me listen to that song finally oh, it already has 28 million views on YouTube. I'm one of the last people to hear it. So either you rate that song without seeing what other people have thought of it already, or if you're late, you have to rate that song in an environment in which you already know how popular it is. You already know how much other people like it before you add your opinion. The idea here was to sort of create these parallel dimensions, alternate earths with identical music, but a different and random sorting of who heard that music first and who heard it last. They wanted to know if the same songs would end up being number one hits in each world, or if popularity was just some kind of result of chance. And what they found was something else entirely. The songs rated poorly. Well, they tended to be rated poorly across worlds. Crap seems, is crap, no matter what dimension you're living in. And likewise, songs that got the best ratings were never considered crap, not in any world. So amazing was amazing across dimensions. But the similarity between worlds ended there, because while bad songs never make it into the top 10, sometimes mediocre songs, perfectly mediocre songs, go right to number one. Sometimes an amazing song does that. Sometimes just an okay song does that. And as one of the researchers, Duncan Watts wrote, once you cross the threshold above which no song outright sucks, only about half of any song's success is due to merit. The rest, it seems, is due to just luck. Just luck. A few upvotes in the beginning, a few five-star ratings up front, and soon social contagion takes over. And what the scientists in that study were trying to do, I think, was similar to what Ada was doing, exploring alternative histories in pursuit of this question. And this is really what we're asking in this podcast. Do we ever have the power to change the outcome of history? In Ada's experiment, she reset history each time and ran it again to see if different variables emerged that then resulted in different outcomes. Could the wars be prevented? Could peace be achieved during the renaissance. In the music experiment, they ran eight different versions of the world simultaneously to see if by their merit alone the best musicians become number one hits. And the answer, it turned out, was just no. Watts actually says in his research that he doesn't believe that if you reran the 1980s that Madonna or other pop stars would be the pop stars we remember. It would cause a completely different set of variables to play out. Maybe someone who was in the bathroom is not in the bathroom while the person is on stage, and that person is instrumental in causing a little bit of popularity to cascade forward, and it results in a different social momentum, and someone else takes Madonna's place. But here's the thing. Someone would have taken her place because there was a space carved out for superstars of pop like her and it was inevitable that someone would fill it. But no one, not even this alternate star, would have been in control of that outcome. No one is in control. No one can will history to turn out differently. And as Ada demonstrates, this isn't just true of music history. This is true of all of human history
1: because sometimes they'll make the most beautiful alliances. One time we had a great uh, King Henry VII of England, and he worked out this gorgeous five-way elaborate alliance with a marriage between the King of Portugal and the Princess of Hungary, and there was another marriage between the, the Crown Prince of England and one of the Princesses of France, and it really looked like we were on the edge of world peace. And then somebody assassinated the Prince of Wales. And England blamed France. And France blamed the Holy Roman Empire. And the Holy Roman Empire blamed Spain. And Spain blamed the Ottoman Sultan. And every alliance in Europe fell apart. And it became the bloodiest mass war I'd ever seen in this simulation.
0: And that brings us to the point of this episode. And it's this question that I've had for a really long time. And it's this. Is progress inevitable? I mean, we look back through time and we see all this ignorance, technological, scientific, medical ignorance, and we see all this injustice, a lack of freedom, a world before the social changes that made things that were so heinous, that were so commonplace, unthinkable today. And you get this sense that social change is a force of nature itself, that progress, however you define that word, is inevitable. And that we are in control of that progress. That it's not just a bunch of shifting sands. It's not a desert that looks different every day because it's just going back and forth. It's on an arc that we chose to go to the moon and we will choose to go to the stars as well. And though I've believed that for so long, things will happen in history right now in history that will make you think, hmm, I don't know. Could we go backwards? Could we stall? Could it end? Maybe progress isn't inevitable. And that's why I wanted to talk to Ada Palmer because this is, this is something she's written about. This is something she thinks about a lot. And this is why she does this classroom exercise, this history simulation. And she says that she has learned over the years, doing this rerun of history over and over again, that the answer to whether or not we are in control is, is a little more complicated than just yes or no. The answer is more like not completely, but a little bit.
1: So that's the way watching this happen a lot and studying history that I try to show my students how to think about it, that it's both giant inevitable forces and individual human agents who determine the course of events because those giant forces are there. The networks of money and power are there. They are powerful. They have momentum. The appetite of these crowned heads of Europe for war is insatiable. They're going to make war. Nothing can stop it. The dam is going to break. But it's the individual actions of the people involved who determine where the floodwaters go, who determine which kind of war and where and how bad. Who can view those forces, think hard about those forces, and try to figure out how best to channel those forces, to direct them so that whatever individual person is trying to protect can be protected. And that can succeed.
0: My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And this episode is about progress. Is it inevitable? Is it natural? Is it real? And are we in control? And after this commercial break, we're going to ask Ada Palmer all those questions and just pick her brain. Just listen to what she has to say, because she's one of the smartest people in the world. And progress is something she thinks about a whole lot. All that after this break. There are so many areas that I would have loved to have learned more about when I was in school, but I didn't have the time or I was intimidated by the subject. And that is why I love having the Great Courses Plus. And if you haven't signed up for this, you need to because it's a great way to learn about anything. Learn more about what interests you from leading professors and experts in history, science, math, literature, art, music, or pick up a new hobby like drawing or chess or cooking. There's unlimited access to more than 9,000 lectures, and you can watch them at any time, or stream the audio with the Great Courses Plus app, just like a podcast. I recommend checking out their new course, What Einstein Got Wrong. It's a fascinating look at Einstein's scientific career, but it's a little, it's a little different from what you're expecting, because Einstein revolutionized the way we think about the universe, and he transformed our conceptions of space, time, gravity, light, energy, and matter, but He was a human being, and this course, it looks at how some of his philosophical prejudices and flawed thinking led him to conclusions that turned out to be false. Now, I know you'll get so much out of The Great Courses Plus, and as one of my listeners, you'll get a free trial to enjoy it all. Watch that course, What Einstein Got Wrong, the whole thing, for free. But you need to go to my special URL. So start exploring today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Smart. That's the slash smart. Free stuff. Go get it. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Are you ready to start your new business? Well, you can make it stand out with Squarespace. With beautiful templates created by world class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. You can showcase your work. Your blog, you can publish content, you can even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. When people look up your thing on the internet, you need to own what they find when they go looking for you. And you can customize what it is they find. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products, and it's all optimized for mobile right out of the box. Use Squarespace's analytics to help you grow in real time, and there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Though, if you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. Destiny is calling, and it says you need a new website. Make it with Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SO SMART to save 10% off of your first purchase. Now, that's squarespace.com, 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain with the offer code so smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. This episode is about progress, and our guest is University of Chicago historian Ada Palmer. I wanted to talk to Ada because she wrote this Brilliant, fun, illuminating essay earlier this year titled On Progress and Historical Change over at her website. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. That essay addressed a question I've wondered about for years Is progress inevitable? Are we headed somewhere with all this change, or is it just a bunch of chaos going nowhere in particular? What follows is just a straight interview with questions and answers on that topic. No fancy editing, just Ada explaining the answers to that question. So, let's pick her brain. Based on your expertise, this idea that progress, this concept, is it an invented idea uh, or is you know real? I mean, what is it? What is this thing that we call
1: progress? Well, as I as I discussed in the essay, like any concept we have, humans came up with this concept at a particular point, which is separate from the question of whether the concept is describing something that's a reality. Um, So the concept of progress itself has a history, which is somewhat separate from progress having a history. Uh, And and the modern concept of progress, uh, which means to me, the expectation that every generation's experience is going to be different from the experience of the generation before, that our human action brings about that difference, and that... Generation by generation, through teamwork, we can make the human experience in the world better so that each generation's experience is not only different, but better than that before. That concept really dates to the beginning of the 17th century. And it's very difficult for a person who's always had the concept of progress to actually imagine what it's like to think without the concept of progress. And I often struggle with this with my students when I'm introducing the pre-modern authors that we read together. Uh, But the idea that people don't imagine that the experience of other generations will be different from their own. But you see tons of evidence that indeed people didn't. And for example, when you look at medieval art, they will depict people from Greek and Roman antiquity dressed in the same clothes they're dressing in every day. So that whether they're depicting Plato and Aristotle or Jesus and the apostles, they'll be wearing whatever is worn in the village that the people are from who are making the depiction, because they're thinking of the world as constant. But it's also in things like architecture. You build a house with the expectation in the Middle Ages that the same house is going to be occupied for hundreds and hundreds of years by people living a very similar life. And you put in the extra work of building a stone house instead of a wooden house, precisely so that five generations later, people will still be living in it. This is not the way we think about building things now or making things now. Mm -hmm. If you need to go buy a teapot, you don't buy the teapot thinking your great great grandson will buy it, will Mm. be using the same teapot. You buy it thinking, by the time I have a great-great-grandson, we will have better teapots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It will naturally be replaced by its successor. Mm-hmm. Cities will change their shape. People, demographics will move around. We assume this very naturally. and It informs our daily buying practices, our advice that we give to younger people, and the choices we make about the paths of our own lives.
0: mm mm-hmm. Well, you know, this reminds me of something. Um, Daniel Dennett was writing about the um, when he was trying to explain the bicameral theory that of Julian James, he he was talking about how James said that um, he wrote James said at some point in his writings that uh, history was invented uh, or it was discovered um, sometime before him. Uh, at some point in history, uh, uh Herodotus, I think is what he said, was the inventor of this uh concept. And Dennett it was like, yeah, you know, well, of history. Yeah, and so Dennett was like, you know, this sounds ridiculous to uh, to a lay person and it did to me too. I was like, I don't understand what that means. But he, he explains it he said, Was there a history of lions and antelopes? And he, he says, Of course, things happened for them and in time past and but they it's not been recorded and they don't think they don't have that as a concept in their mind as far as we understand. And so their passage of time has not been conditioned by their recognition of that transition. Um, and he goes on to say, you know, you can't have baseball without the concept of baseball, money without the concept of money. And for James, he was saying that about the concept of consciousness. And, but so the, all that popped in my head when I was reading. Uh, you had written, you wrote that you know, did the Renaissance have progress? And you said not conceptually, even though they were having what we might consider progress from our point of view. Right. I'm just wondering um, what. Um, when, um, when you're talking about the way you frame that, did um, do we have to have the concept of progress to really enjoy the fruits of it, is what I'm trying to ask?
1: Certainly not. And there are plenty of good things that people invent over the course of time and changes that happen uh, over the course of time before the concept of progress. And in fact, the concept of progress predates by... More than two hundred years, scientific and technological progress actually really yielding things that made human life very much better. You know at the very beginning of the seventeenth century, Francis Bacon comes up with this proposal of a community of scientists uh, that the that scholars should not strive to vie with each other by amassing the most knowledge. Uh, nor should they strive to weave the most elaborate theories and proofs of things that, are, that have no function, but that they should instead work together, share knowledge as much as possible to try to develop tools which would be useful for making human life better. And I can use a very narrow example here of Leonardo da Vinci, who's probably the most famous pre-modern figure that we think of in any way as an inventor and a scientist. And from one sense, he absolutely is a scientist because he's spending his time investigating anatomy and figuring out new chemical compounds to make more complicated bronzes and so on. He's doing all the things we think of as research. But he's writing all of it down in notebooks where he writes in coded mirror writing so no one else can do it. His goal is not to bring new technologies to the world so everyone can have them and the world can change. His goal is for him to be able to do these things so that he will be renowned and famous and celebrated, and so that the patron or prince that he works for will have a proprietary monopoly on this special thing that he and only he can do. It's a completely different purpose to science that isn't about changing society. It's about creating particular powerful things for particular people and in a particular place once in order to earn glory and power, which is not what the 17th century community of progress-oriented scientists starts to do. They want to actually change the human condition and invent things like refrigeration, That will make everyone, even peasants everywhere on Earth, even outside of England where this begins, enjoy a better life forever after.
0: It's so odd because I, um, you know, you mentioned uh, this these historical models: Whig history, uh, Leninist, Marxist-Leninist history, and others. They 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 all assume we're marching toward this endpoint. I I too, I grew up my whole life thinking we're headed towards Star Trek, the next generation. That's where we're going. Um, right. That that is just absolutely, I mean, that's just how things work. That we, there is a arc to history. It gets, it slows down, it speeds up, but we are on our way to Star Trek, the next generation uh, with liberty and enlightenment and uh, no more scarcity. And I really, you know, I learned later on about this te- teleological view and all that. Um, and I'm wondering, um, so, you know, just to sort of like really answer this question, like, uh, is progress toward that sort of uh vision of the future is is it inevitable is that something that is definitely going to happen do we what do we have to what is your uh, estimation of that of that idea
1: I, mean, I think progress is inevitable uh in that change is inevitable and in fact change in moral values are inevitable i think that it would be Erroneous and hubristic for us to claim that we can successfully predict what the future change in moral values are going to be any more than the drafters of uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man or the uh, foundational documents of the American and French revolutions could have predicted that gay marriage would be one of the eventual social consequences of the new worlds that they ushered in. There are going to be other elements of future moral progress that we can't anticipate yet. Uh, And the, the future, if the future we build has the same relationship to the present that our present has to the past that created it, the future we build is not going to be somewhere where anyone who is alive right now would be comfortable. Because the moral systems that we have in value right now are going to be plowed past by people in the future who will progress far beyond even what we're aiming at and in directions we can't necessarily anticipate. One of the issues faced by people who want to accelerate progress, to help build progress, to launch progress and create futures, is knowing that they are but thereby destroying the world they live in now. Voltaire, Rousseau, Diderot, they destroyed France as they lived in it and created another one with the confidence that it would be better. But if you brought Voltaire forward in time, I think he would be delighted by some things he saw. He would be delighted by how broadly educated women are. He would be delighted by a democratic society. I also think he would feel like a fish out of water in an egalitarian society without social class, which he was used to, questioned and tried to break down, but nonetheless was very used to. Uh, it's, It's hard to deal with those kinds of change. And the last, you know, eight generations really have all been working towards social change and achieved more social change than they expected to short term in some ways, and then ended up facing consequences of that which were unexpected.
0: Well, so what are some of the problems with thinking in this way? Because you mentioned this as you know, there's you, there's a bit of a, um, a little bit of a warning, a little bit of a hesitation in your essay about you know uh, subscribing too much to this teleological view of the world. Uh, what are some of the major caveats or some of the major pitfalls of uh, subscribing to that view?
1: I think one of the major ones is when you believe it's inevitable you lose sight of the fact that it's only achieved by human action. Mm. And you feel as if sitting back talking about the fact that exchange is obviously the next step is all you need to do. And then exchange will come about. And also it means that if anything seems to resist or go against the grain of that change, it's easy to judge that thing as being somehow not just an adversary, but somehow in a broader, deeper, almost metaphysical sense, sort of wrong. And why is it there? And it shouldn't be there. Mm. And it's unnatural that something should be pushing against this. Uh, Whereas in fact, that leads to a sort of tendency towards scorn or derision of anything that's contrary to this supposedly inevitable path. And whenever you scorn or deride something, you stop taking it seriously, stop trying to understand it, and therefore stop trying to work with it in any kind of constructive way and just sort of watch it flow. Um, in a lot of ways as well, if you believe in this inevitability, then you start seeing things that are not working correctly according to this flow as being some kind of sort of social sabotage or evil will, or intentionality. Whereas, in fact, a lot of the time when progress results in cataclysmic problems, which it very frequently does, part of the cause is that we didn't understand the system well enough to be doing quite the right things in the first place. One of the big and long lessons that we've been learning over and over in the course of attempting to achieve progress is that the system, whether that system is the planet Earth or the chemicals that we work with or the biology of the human body or the layout of the human brain or the complex interweavings of human society, these are all much, much, much more complicated than we thought they were at the beginning. When when scientists started trying to work together in this direction in the 17th and 18th centuries, they really thought they'd be done in 200 years. They would have fully worked out how the body worked, how science worked, how government should be set up, worked out the rational perfect set of laws, and it would be done. And not only those early figures who, you know, you can't blame them for thinking this because they'd never understood anything as complex as any of the things they were trying to understand. But we keep learning over and over that things are more complicated than we thought they were. And a great one to use as an example that we're facing right now is gender differentiation? Yeah, you know, our efforts to achieve gender equality have gone slower than we would have liked to imagine they would. People have been calling for gender equality. Well, the first person to experimentally do so is Plato in three hundred BC, followed by Thomas Hobbes two thousand years later. Uh, but but the the history of a momentum toward Arguments for gender equality, which gets going in the 18th century, we started working toward that by trying to achieve the franchise, trying to achieve equality under law, uh, letting women move into workplaces where men also were, and we got as as we had victory after victory, especially in the middle and first half of the second half of the 20th century. So the 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 60s, the 70s, the 80s, as we had lots of victories. It really is easy to feel in that point as if feminism should be finished. And conversations about is feminism done started actually arising. And now we're, of course, seeing lots of expressions of uh, sexism and other problems with gender discrimination uh, flaring up. And a lot of people are feeling like, where did this come from? This came out of nowhere Or is this evil people trying to reverse something that was happening? Whereas the actual answer is that trying to change the way people feel about gender is very hard because we ingrain it in our minds so deeply, so unconsciously, and so young. There was a great study recently that when people interact with infants, newborn infants, and you put your finger in front of the infant and the infant reaches up its hand and wraps its fingers around your finger and grasps it. It's like the first action an infant learns to take is grasping a finger you give it. And if it's a boy baby, we then tug to test the strength of the hand. And if it's a girl baby, we don't. When they are two days old, we do this. And we do this without thinking about it. So we start introducing different treatment and therefore changing neural development unconsciously. When kids are teeny, teeny, tiny and we keep doing it constantly from then on. And when kids are toddlers and they're out in the yard playing and they get all muddy and a little boy comes in and he's all muddy and we say, oh, you got all muddy. But if a little girl comes in, we say, oh, you got mud all over your nice clothes. You shouldn't do that slightly more firmly, partly because we've dressed her usually in Less practical clothing, where getting mud on it is more of a problem. But we do this without thinking about it, and so we ingrain difference in kids when they're really, really tiny. We didn't understand this fact even a couple decades ago when we felt like feminism had so much momentum. And so we haven't realized that we've treated, you know, we thought we had broken up all the ice, but it turned out that there's also an iceberg underneath it that we didn't realize was there. And what we're seeing are the consequences of that iceberg, which we didn't plan for. And now we're learning that our approach has to be deeper and more complicated. This applies to gender differentiation. It applies to how we think about sexual equality and sexual orientation. It applies to race. It applies to all sorts of subtle things that felt like we were two thirds of the way done conquering them
0: um I'm wondering if um would it be fair to uh, to somewhat define the notion of progress as we've been discussing it as being more a growing complexification with sort of narratives that were laying on top of that, moral narratives and other sorts of things. Is that a, is that a fair way to represent it?
1: Um I don't know about glowing growing complexification because that implies that things weren't as complex before, if that makes sense. And you know, the Middle Ages were very, very complex. They didn't change as quickly, but I think attempting to describe exactly how their society worked would be comparably difficult. So trying to explain precisely how our society works.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So,
0: So how does our modern notion of progress differ from the notions of the past? You, you, you actually say in the essay that in the early 17th century, Francis Bacon invented progress. And so if you could unpack that and then also sort of help us understand how our modern notion has, has differed from the way people have sort of framed this in the past.
1: Well, when it launches first, it's, It's expected to be unilaterally positive. And there's also a sense that humans and only humans have control over this and will make this happen. That there will be no progress unless the community of scientists works together to try to make it so. Now, Bacon is an immensely powerful rhetorician. He makes you love this plan and want to be part of this plan. Uh, you know, his, his, his famous simile is the simile of the three insects that, uh, uh, scholars and wise men are all like one of three insects. Some of them are like ants who travel around collecting all of the information that they can find and putting it in a big pile and making a big pile and the, the ants with the biggest pile win over the other ants, but it doesn't do anything. It just puts it in a pile. Uh, and these are the encyclopedists who gather information without, without using it. And the second are the spiders. And the spiders win, win, uh, spin elaborate webs of theory and proof and logical deduction that are just really woven out of the stuff of their own being. And they're beautiful and intricate and you can get trapped in them for years of delightful study. But all it is is really the patterns woven out of the person and doesn't reflect reality. Uh, But the third kind, Bacon said, is the honeybee, uh, which traveling through the world and gathers from among the fruits of nature, uh, that which is sweet and good and transforming it through the organ of his own being creates something which is good and useful for mankind. And that is the scientist. And it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful articulation. But it has no sense of progress being Unstoppable or having any kind of momentum or being uh, inevitable, it's just if we sit down and do this, there will be progress. If we don't, there won't. Let's do this. And he frames it as a religious duty. He's a Christian, he's a Protestant, he's a you know a good member of the church. and he frames it for his readers who he expects to be also. That uh, In the English church That uh, It is your Christian duty to be charitable Toward others And what act of charity could be better Than to do something which will improve The life of every single human being Who will ever be born For the rest of time Therefore he says It is our Christian duty to be scientists Because that is the ultimate Act of charity It's amazingly persuasive And there's this religious zeal A Christian religious zeal behind the first efforts toward the description of the intricacies of the circulation of the blood and, and what can be seen of tiny creatures under the microscope and all of this has a deep religiosity to it. It's just very different from the way we think about the relationship between science and religion. And I remember at one point I was doing bacon in a class with students and one of them wrote in her reaction paper, that she was really surprised because, quote, I always thought of science as the enemy of religion, end quote. And that is completely absent from Bacon's idea and from the ideas of his contemporaries. And I work a lot on the history of atheism and where the origins of its uh, reactions come. And it really takes a long time and isn't until starting in part of the 18th century, that there's any strong association between science and atheism. Uh, and it's really until deep into the 20th century that there's any preexpectation that science on the whole will be against the existence of God instead of for. So in the first decades of the 20th century, the default assumed position in most of the Western world is that science on the whole serves to prove, not disprove, the existence of God. Uh, And the fact that within just a few decades, that expectation has been kind of reversed uh, has totally changed the way people think about progress because progress is tied in so much to science. And if science is seen as adversarial to religion, then progress can't be seen as something framed within the context of religion, or at least it's much harder to see it that way. The way it originally had been. I, I
0: um, something. So the question is: um, Do we have any control at all over um, this arc, any arcs, or uh, do we have any control over how things are going to change as we get into that um, future? Can we create the future that we want to live in?
1: I mean, I think we have the we have the power to work toward changes. We have the power to take steps that will make the changes we aim at much more likely. We don't have the power to anticipate all the secondary consequences of those actions and changes and control them. The thing we keep learning since the enlightenment is that when we push for major social changes, there are often also huge secondary consequences that we just don't anticipate. And the Enlightenment is a moment when there was a lot of very systematic, intentional, energetic push for change, push for scientific change, push for especially for uh, social mores to change, for education to change, and for society to change. It was very intentional, and it achieved things. I mean, they did a lot in the Enlightenment. They banned judicial torture in Europe within the lifetime of a very few people working on it. That is an immense achievement. Um they achieved a lot, but they also initiated bigger changes than they expected, and the French Revolution was one of the consequences of that, the explosive consequences of that uh, secondary consequence that none of the original leaders of a movement could have anticipated. And many other things that we've tried at different points have had such secondary consequences while also having their primary consequences. So for example, we figured out that cholera was being spread by bad sanitation and we took actions to improve sanitation. And indeed we ended the major cholera epidemic that had been plaguing Europe and we kept working on sanitation and The infant mortality rate dropped and dropped and the disease rate dropped and dropped. And then we had the polio epidemic because polio was made stronger by sanitation, which is because we hadn't understood that some diseases work some ways and others work other ways. And that polio would, in fact, become worse, not better with sanitation because polio requires the child to be exposed to the virus while still nursing from the mother. And if you're exposed while still nursing, you share your mother's antibodies and become immune to polio. But if you're not exposed that young, if sanitation is too good, so you're not exposed until you're six, then you get polio. So before sanitation, when we were all facing cholera, everyone was immune to polio or right, because we all got it as infants. But when we created sanitation, we solved cholera, and then we caused the polio epidemic. But then we studied polio, and we figured out treatments and vaccines, and now we're defeating polio, too. So did the push toward defeating cholera succeed? Yes. Did it have a giant negative consequence? Yes. Are we also now solving that giant negative consequence? Yes because we continue to study and get better at these things over time. So we're never or not for a very long time going to hit a point where there aren't secondary consequences that we can't anticipate, but we're getting better and better over time at dealing with those secondary consequences, anticipating those secondary consequences, and the primary goals are still worth trying to achieve, and we can achieve those.
0: I see that. Now. now Now I'm feeling good. Now I'm back to optimism mode again. <laughs> uh, um, I, uh, well, one of the
1: things yeah. we've created, by the way, one of the things we've created and are working really hard to create, and it's actually one of the things that I think people are most alarmed at seeing threatened right now, is that since the Enlightenment and especially the 19th century, those were periods when we were really pushing progress to accelerate, trying new social experiments, succeeding. And huge numbers of people were suffering as a result. Huge number, you know, the, the life expectancy was dropping in cities where people were being worked to death in deadly factories with horrible chemicals and colonialism and the enslavement of native peoples all over the world and slave labor and factory labor caused huge amounts of destruction and suffering, which were consequences of the push toward progress. Both the you know, enterprising trying to start businesses and the unfortunate cultural side effect of since we have a superior culture, Europe says, we will impose this by force on others. We discovered how terrible that was. We worked to try to end it. It's ended in some ways and not in others. And as a result of it, we worked hard, especially in the 20th century, to develop a better social safety net. And I don't mean the social safety net that when you're a middle class factory worker and you get injured, pays your workman's comp. I mean the social safety net that there are social workers looking out for things, that cops visit factories to make sure the conditions aren't horrific, that we have a bunch of checks in place to try to prevent the secondary consequences of progress from hurting people as rampantly as they did before. That was one of the things our society created in response to what we learned in the 19th century. And people who had experienced that 19th century really understood why we needed all of those checks. But now there are a lot of people with power, both because they're in office and because they're voting for the people who are in office, who never experienced what it was like without those safety features. Mm -hmm and see only the negative side effects of those safety features that they require resources that they're time consuming that they result in paperwork they do all of these things while also solving problems that people don't remember very much anymore so people talk about you know why do we have so, have to have so much regulation i'm just a bakery why do i have <laughs> to have constant health inspections and the answer is well because Last century, bakeries were putting lead in the bread (laughs) to make it look white, and everybody died, and it was bad, and we don't want that again. And there were lots of people who were put in different positions in society where they had no help, nothing to turn to, and really no escape for very bad circumstances. We made a whole lot of social institutions designed to prevent that to mitigate that, to watch out for that, they've been working. They've been working so well that a lot of people don't know why we needed them in the first place. And therefore, there is a willingness to try to dismantle them that no one I know who is a historian will ever sympathize with because we know how terrible it was to live in the past. We don't want to. And, and social progress as well. And and I think one of the things that I, it, it hurts a lot to see how much social progress we still have to make. It's terrible to see what rape culture is like in America right now. It's terrible to see what race relations are like in America right now. But this is a society where if, you know, I'm female and if I were to have premarital sex, my father would not be obliged to kill me. That's great. And that's actual progress. That's actual progress that we have actually made and that isn't slipping right now. And yes, we have miles and miles and miles to go before racial or sexual equality will be the kinds of realities that we want. But that doesn't mean we haven't made real progress as well. We've made progress. It's just harder to see when you're zoomed in and seeing how bad it still is.
0: Oh, look, I thank you so much, so much.
1: And let's talk again sometime.
0: I will so be in touch in the future and I thank you so much. Excellent. All right, take care.
1: Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> H-A-N-D.
0: That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to Boing Boing Podcast for more great podcasts like this one. Go to youarenotsosmart.com for show notes and links to everything that we talked about. Go to Stitcher, iTunes, or SoundCloud, or youarenotsosmart.com to get all the previous episodes. Follow us on Twitter, at NotSmartBlog. Follow me, at David McRaney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. And you can just sort of uh, check out what we're doing by going to Facebook slash you are not so smart.